The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Now, I'm sure many or all of you have heard uh, this past week the sad news of the Queen's passing. As a result, many stories about the Queen have surfaced this past week, one of which that I thought was particularly interesting and stuck out to me. Every, Every legislative session in the UK begins with a visit from the Queen, and it's a very regal tradition. So she wears her crown and her royal robe and proceeds down a hallway lined with the queen's guards who literally strike the stone with their swords to to let sparks fly as the queen passes by. The hallway ends at the House of of Lords where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne. And essentially she commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. Well, several years ago, they were forced to break tradition a little bit. Into, to accommodate the queen in her older age. There's a grand staircase that goes up uh, to, to, the, to, uh, to lead to the hallway, and it became too much for the queen to climb up those stairs. So they started to, to take a new route to use an elevator to get her to the proper floor. Well, the first year, a little bit of a mistake was made. The lift operator, uh, and I'm, I'm saying that in you know, the British term uh, to, to pay my respects, the lift operator accidentally pushed the button to the wrong floor. And instead of pressing the floor to the entrance of parliament, he accidentally pushed the floor to the maintenance, uh, pressed the floor for the maintenance floor. And so the elevator goes up, the doors open, and Alice, the maintenance worker from the cleaning crew with her head down, pushes her cleaning cart into the elevator, just as she had done countless times before. Only this time, she unknowingly pinned the Queen of England to the back of the small elevator with her cleaning cart. After the doors close behind Alice, she realized who she was riding with in the elevator and what she had done. And in shock, she let out some choice words uh, not befitting the presence of royalty. Now, after that, there was an awkward silence with no one knowing what to do. But then the, 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 the silence was woke, uh, broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter. And then the most remarkable invitation was extended. Rather than pushing the button to let Alice off the next floor, the queen asked the lift operator to take them to the floor of parliament together. Now remember, now remember, this is an incredibly formal and regal event, right? People are dressed to the nines. Queen got the crown on. So when the door opens to everyone's shock, out walks Her Majesty the Queen, along with Alice, the maintenance worker. The Queen in her regalia, along with Alice in her maintenance uniform, proceed side by side down the royal hallway. But it gets even better. Once a year after that, once a year for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her newfound bestie, Queen Elizabeth. Talk about an unlikely person to accompany the queen for her royal procession, right? And an unlikely story of Alice, the maintenance worker, and the friendship with her majesty, the queen. Well, this morning, we're going to learn about another unlikely person who also had an incredibly unlikely story. This woman's story was a story of tragedy and of triumph, of suffering 
and of salvation, of ruin and redemption. In the story of Ruth, we have a viewpoint, a perspective to see the invisible providential hand of God at work, guiding and directing circumstances, tragedy, suffering, and seeming coincidences to redeem the unlikely and to further his sovereign plan of redemption in the world. In the book of Ruth this morning, we will see that God redeems unlikely people and that he uses unlikely people through unlikely situations to advance his plan of redemption in the world. I hope you're catching up on a theme, catching a theme there. Unlikely, right? So with that being said, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning. And we'll see how we're going to first do an overview of the story of Ruth. And we'll see how that applies to our lives today. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and pray for us this morning. Oh, Father in heaven, we do confess that you are our shelter. You are our strong tower. You are our rock of refuge. And there's no other name that's powerful to save but your name. And so we do pray even now for the, that let the nations be glad and let the, let the nations sing with joy. Let the nations say the Lord reigns. And, uh, and so we pray that, that we would join in with, with our brothers and sisters around the world today in worshiping our Savior and worshiping Christ. And so uh, pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, our minds to understand, that you would open our hearts to believe your truth, that you would open our souls to worship and to glory and to exult in our Savior this morning, and that you would renew our wills to greater obedience to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I hope, I hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Ruth. If you're, maybe it's been a bit since you've read uh, the book of Ruth. Go to the J's in the Old Testament, Joshua Judges, kind of near the front of your Bible, Joshua Judges. And then the next one will be Ruth. Uh, okay, so we're going to go through and just, again, overview and then some application. So the, the book of Ruth begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, which, just as an aside, if you're, if you're having a bad week, just be encouraged. Your name is not Orpah. It could be, it could be worse. Uh, but uh, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So, so Elimelech, Malon, Kilion. They all die, so that, the women, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this then sets the stage for scene one in the book of Ruth. When Naomi urges Orpah and Ruth to go back to their homeland, to go back to their mother's home and to get on with their life. And, and we see in the story that Orpah decides to do that. But we read these beautiful and moving words from Ruth in chapter one, verses 16 through 18. And, and take a look at it with me. It says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And so Ruth and Naomi travel from Moab back to their homeland, back to Bethlehem. And once they arrive, Ruth sets out to glean in the fields for food. And so you might think uh, in today's parlance, you know, Ruth and Naomi were living paycheck to paycheck or in their day, grain to grain, right? It was subsistence living. So she goes to the fields to try to get a little bit of food for the day. And though coincidental to Ruth, in God's providence, Ruth ends up gleaning in the fields of a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz was one of Elimelech's, Naomi's former husband, her late husband. He was one of Elimelech's kinsmen, one of his relatives. And in chapter 2, so let's go to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, Ruth then meets Boaz, and the text says that she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So bookmark that phrase right there. We'll come back to that. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to me, your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And we see the significance of Ruth again meeting Boaz in chapter 2, verse 20, when Naomi tells Ruth, May Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, back in Leviticus 25, I'm sure I don't have to uh, remind you of this. Your Leviticus reading is up to date, I'm sure. But back in Leviticus chapter 25, the process of a kinsman redeemer was instituted. And it was originally set up to allow family members to buy back or to purchase, to redeem their relatives from slavery or from a bondage, um, from a debt bondage. Now, interestingly, the Lord set up this institution of a kinsman redeemer to model the story of how he redeemed his people Israel from their bondage and their enslavement to Egypt. And so while it wasn't mandatory for someone to become a kinsman redeemer for one of their relatives, it was a way for them to, uh, for, to extend this picture of redemption to a relative as God had shown redemption to his people. Or, or in, a, in a sense, it was a way to mirror God in this world. And so it was a very honorable and noble thing to do. So this then leads us to chapter 3 in uh, verses 1 through 18 when Naomi prods Ruth to take the next steps with Boaz. To approach Boaz when he's alone as he's winnowing barley on the, fre- the threshing floor and to secretly lay at his feet and to, and to uncover his feet. Now granted, this does not seem like good and godly advice, Right? Yet Ruth obeys her mother-in-law and goes along with the plan. And so how do we interpret Ruth's intentions here? When, I think it's a good general rule in life, right? That when we are required to make judgments on unclear situations, we look at the facts at hand and then also the character of the people involved, right? So facts and character of people to figure out what, you know, what is the right uh, uh, judgment. 
So up to this point, the author painstakingly goes to great extents to highlight Ruth's virtuous character. In chapter one, we see her hesed toward Naomi. Now, hesed, it, it's a word that doesn't, it's a Hebrew word that doesn't have a one-to-one English equivalent, right? Uh, it's mostly used within a relationship context. And, and so we might think of hesed as encompassing loving kindness, faithful commitment, lasting loyalty, compassionate mercy. It's often used in the Old Testament of how God relates to his people. And so this word hesed, it, Ruth's life is a living illustration of hesed toward her mother-in-law, Naomi. So first we see her hesed, but then also in chapter two, we see Ruth's work ethic in the fields and also her humility before Boaz, right? Hesed, humility, work ethic. And then in chapter three, verse 11, we see Ruth's known reputation among the town as a reputable and worthy woman. Similarly, Boaz's character is also portrayed as a gracious and virtuous man up to this point in the story. In chapter two, verse one, Boaz is described as a worthy man. So based upon these two intentional portrayals of both Boaz and Ruth, I think it's safe to say that that Ruth is sincere in her intentions and pure in her actions toward Boaz. But then if Ruth is this virtuous woman, why would she follow the advice of her mother-in-law? Why would she risk her reputation in the community? And why would she risk severing her relationship with Boaz, the one and the one in whose fields she's gleaning. Why would she do this, approach him in this way? We see in chapter three, verse nine, the answer. Boaz, when he finds out somebody's uncovering my feet, he says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Now, now imagine with me and picture, see if you can picture in those words, Ruth's posture of humility coupled with the strain of desperation, right, of her situation. Why did she approach Boaz? Because she knew that her only redeeming hope was found in her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. She had nowhere else to go. Boaz was plan A and there was no plan B. And therefore she was willing to risk her reputation if it meant that Boaz would become her redeemer because he was her only redeeming hope. So now as Ruth went to find refuge under the wings, under the symbolic wings of Boaz, even more today, right? We find refuge in the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross. And though Boaz redeemed Ruth from her physical situation, even more Christ redeemed us, not from our physical situations, but from our spiritual state of being condemned. He redeemed us from uh, the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So while Boaz was able to redeem Ruth from her physical misery, Jesus redeems us from our spiritual misery and from the sin debt that we owe toward God. In Christ's redemption, we find safety and rest. Safety from God's wrath and rest for our souls. So I just encourage you this morning, look to him, turn to him, trust in him and find your soul's rest in the security of his redeeming love for you. For if you are trusting in his redemption, then there is nothing 
Paul would tell us that there's neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that is able to separate you from your Savior's love. Friends, your only redeeming hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. There's no other way. He is your only hope. And so if that is true for you, like Ruth, humbly and desperately seek out your Savior and find your only redeeming hope in him. If, that's not, if you would say this morning, you know, I, I, maybe I've played the game of religion most of my life. Maybe I've, I've thought that this whole Christianity thing is about what I need to do for God instead of what he has graciously done for me. Then I have good news for you this morning. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You can find forgiveness, full forgiveness, full redemption from your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have received his salvation this morning, then I want to ask you this question. Are you fully convinced in the deepest, innermost part of your being that his redemption is true? The most consistently fervent, faithful, and fruitful Christians in life are those who are fully convinced of the security that they have found in the love of Jesus. Are you resting secure and safe in his love? So going back to the story of Ruth, chapter four, we're we're getting near the end of the overview. Boaz promises to redeem Ruth. Yet before he redeems her, Boaz does the noble thing by offering a relative closer to Elimelech uh, the opportunity to, to redeem Naomi and Ruth. So, so the, the institution was such that the, the closest relative had the first opportunity to be the kinsman redeemer. And so he approaches this relative, the relative declines, and so Boaz redeems Naomi's land and takes Ruth to be his wife. And that, it literally says, I have bought Ruth to be my wife. And then after this happens, the elders of the town affirm this redemption and they bless Ruth by saying in chapter four, verses 11 through 12, they say this. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Leah and like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So maybe I'm hoping as, as we read even that blessing that your ears are perking up a little bit and then you're picking up on some key words, right? Judah, Bethlehem, future offspring. So it's getting your minds going, what, 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 what is this pointing us to here in a little bit? And we'll, get, we'll touch on that. But the book of Ruth ends with God rewarding Boaz and Ruth with a son. They name their son Obed, who then fathers a son named Jesse, who then fathers a son named David the one who would be the greatest earthly king of Israel. Now, as we have seen the story of Ruth, it's a a beautiful, beautiful story. Again, one of tragedy and triumph, one of suffering and salvation, one of ruin and redemption. And if if it's been a while since you've read the book of Ruth, I encourage you, maybe, maybe this afternoon or this evening, just sit down. It won't take you long, but just read from beginning to end the story of Ruth. It's beautiful. But we must ask ourselves, is the only purpose of this book so that we'd get to enjoy a good story this morning? Or is there a greater purpose for why God inspired the author to write it? Maybe more specifically, how does the story of Ruth fit into the overall narrative, the overall storyline of Scripture itself? 
And one of the greatest themes in Ruth is the theme of redemption, right? We've touched on that throughout. And yet the beautiful, this beautiful story of redemption points us to an even grander, an even greater, and an even better story of redemption. So for now, the rest, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to point you to two main points, two main implications from this book. And the first is this, that God redeems unlikely people. First, we see that God redeems unlikely people in the book of Ruth. And though, though Ruth is depicted as a virtuous and worthy woman in character, the fact remains that she's still a foreigner. Ruth is not an Israelite, and therefore she's not counted as among the covenant people of God. In fact, her, her husband Kilion actually disobeyed God's law by marrying Ruth, a non-Israelite, a Moabite woman, a woman among the Gentiles. And the first chapter implies that Ruth had grown up following after other gods, not following Yahweh, the one true living God. And so when Ruth comes to Bethlehem with Naomi as a foreigner and as a former idolater, in addition to her destitute situation, we see that she is an outcast of society, right? Yet Boaz remains committed to redeeming Ruth and Naomi despite Ruth's identity. And in this, we see a foreshadowing of the gospel through the actions of Boaz. That God redeems people, not on the basis of their ethnicity, not on the basis of their pedigree, not on the basis of their socioeconomic status, not on the basis of their works, but solely on the basis of his mercy. Paul would say this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So do you feel as though maybe this morning that you are the least likely candidate to receive God's redeeming love? Do you feel as though your sins are so great, your stains so dark, your, your past so marred by your mistakes, your failures, and your sins as to make you unworthy of God's love? Well, if that's you, please hear me this morning. You and I, we are unworthy of God's love. You and I, we, we are sinners We're hopeless, we are helpless, and we are perishing in our sins, bound for an eternal hell. We are ungodly, rebelling against God and rejecting his kingly authority and his kind rule over our lives. And we've tried to fabricate a righteousness of our own in order to try to bribe and to appease a holy and righteous God. And yet scripture teaches us that our works, our efforts, our, our, uh, our, our, our doings to try to get ourselves to God They're like, what, filthy rags in his holy sight. There's nothing we can do to redeem ourselves, to buy ourselves back into God's good graces. And that might sound like bad news this morning, but that is the whole point of the gospel, that our salvation doesn't rest in our worthiness or in our work, but solely in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us in his death and his resurrection. Would you see this morning the good news of the, that the promise of salvation, of redemption, of forgiveness of sins, of newness of life, and of hope for eternal life, it's all freely held out to you this morning from the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. As our text says this morning, would you find shelter and protection in the spread-out wings of the Redeemer? For he stretched out his arms out wide on the cross, and he was punished that you might be forgiven. 
He was cursed that you might be blessed. He was condemned that you might be accepted. He was forsaken by God that you might be brought near to God. And he died that you might live, that you might have eternal life with him. And he did this, all of this, because he loves you. In spite of our unworthiness, he saw us at the lowest of our lows. He saw us at the worst of our worst. And what does the Bible say? At the right time, Christ died for the what? Ungodly. He saw you for who you are, and yet he still set his, the sight of his love upon you. He still went to the cross for you, and he still rose from the dead for you, for your salvation and for your life. All of this can be yours today if you don't yet know him. If you would but surrender your life to Jesus and lay hold of your Redeemer. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. My prayer has been leading up to this morning. My prayer has been that you you're able to behold and to see the glory of your redeemer through the story of Ruth and that he redeems unlikely people. He did it then and he can still do that today with people like you and me. Yet not only do we see in the book of Ruth that God redeems unlikely people, we also see that God uses unlikely people through unlikely situations to advance his plan of redemption in the world. So famine, poverty, displacement, death, despair, these are all aspects of Naomi and Ruth's suffering. They were experienced by real people in real circumstances with real consequences, and yet all in the providence of a real God. So a quick question this morning. What, what, what was God's purpose in Naomi and Ruth's suffering? Why did God permit that all of their paternal Care and protection be stripped away from them. Well, one answer, we could we could answer it this way. One answer is that so that Naomi and Ruth might experience the goodness of God's fellowship and the kindness of his heart in the, in the midst of their suffering for their own spiritual good. And we see that that's true in this story. We see that this takes place in Naomi's life. She begins in chapter 1, verse 20, saying, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and I came back empty. So we see that in chapter 1, verse 20. But then afterwards, we see in chapter 2 how Naomi's heart is changed even through her suffering. When she says this, may, uh, when she says this may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Her demeanor, her attitude, and her affections toward the Lord changed through her suffering for her own spiritual good. So we could answer that, the answer to that question, why did God permit and allow, and what was God's purpose in their suffering? We could answer it that way. But then another answer could be that God purposefully used Naomi and Ruth's suffering for their own personal redemption, right? They were, they were destitute, they were alone, but, 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 but through their suffering, they met Boaz, who would become their kinsman redeemer. And we see that to be true as well. However, I think there's a bigger and more ultimate answer to the question of God's purpose in their suffering and in our suffering as well. So let's trace the storyline one more time. Famine hits. Elimelech and his family leave Bethlehem for Moab. 
death strikes not only Elimelech, but his two sons, leaving, leaving three widows uh, vulnerable, alone, and isolated in a foreign land. Orpah leaves Naomi, but Ruth determines to loyally remain by her side, despite personal sacrifices to do so. Naomi and Ruth then leave Moab to go back to Bethlehem and search for, for, uh, for food and then for a kinsman redeemer. Uh, in God's providence, Ruth finds Boaz, who's of the line of Judah, important, who becomes her kinsman redeemer and husband, and they give birth to Obed. And consequently, Ruth and Boaz become the great-grandfather and great-grandmother to King David, through whose lineage would come who? The kinsman redeemer for the entire world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that blessing that the elders of Bethlehem placed upon Ruth in chapter 4, verse 11, that her, that her household and lineage would be like that of Rachel and Leah's? Well, through Rachel and Leah, the nation of Israel was built, right? The sons of Jacob came, the 12 tribes of Israel. But through Ruth's lineage, the new Israel, the church would be built in birth. This new Israel wouldn't consist of a people from one ethnicity, but would be comprised of a people from all nations. It wouldn't be a physical kingdom where an earthly king would rule over a stretch of land, but instead it would be a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, where the king of kings and lord of lords would rule over the hearts and lives of the redeemed. So through Ruth and Naomi's suffering, God advances the the fulfillment of his gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. He advances his covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he advances his covenant to Judah in Genesis 49:10. In a word, through Ruth and Naomi's suffering, God advances his plan to redeem not just Ruth and Naomi, but the entire world to redeem us today. And remember, all of this would not have occurred if Ruth and Naomi did not become widows. So what's, God, what's the bigger answer to the question of God's purpose? In Naomi and Ruth's suffering, that he would use their suffering to advance his plan of global redemption. Now that gives a bit more weight to their suffering, doesn't it? Mark it down. God never wastes anything. In Ruth and Naomi's life and in our lives today. But instead, he seeks to use every circumstance to further his purposes in the world. But we've got to ask this question too. Did Ruth and Naomi fully know in their lifetime how God would use their suffering to advance his global plan of redemption in the world? Did they know the full picture of God's purpose for their suffering? No, they didn't. They didn't know that Ruth's great-grandson would become the greatest earthly king to ever rule Israel. They didn't know the covenant that God would make with David in 2 Samuel 7, the covenant that would lead to the Messiah, to the Christ. They didn't know that Ruth's name would be written in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of our Savior. And to bring that to bear on our own lives, you may never fully know this side of glory, how God will use your faithfulness in suffering to advance his plan of redemption in the lives of others. You may not know how a coworker continually witnessed your faith and joy during your sicknesses or during the loss of a loved one or when you received unjust criticism or were slandered at work and how that spurred within them a desire to, to know the one you professed to know. And you may never know how God might use the passing gospel conversation at the grocery store or at a coffee shop or that fumbled gospel conversation that you have with a coworker or neighbor or that giving of a Bible to a random person. And you will never know this side of 
heaven. How God will use your intercessory prayers for your family, your friends, and the unreached peoples of the world for their salvation. But we are a people of faith, right? And we trust that God is at work within us. And therefore, we faithfully labor for him, even and especially during our times of suffering. Listen, God never wastes anything, particularly our suffering. And he means to use your own suffering, not, for, not just for your individual good, though he does. He will meet you where you are. And his comfort is real. He will meet you. But even more significantly, he will use you in your suffering for the good of others, for the spread of his gospel. God redeems unlikely people and he uses unlikely people through unlikely situations to advance his plan of redemption in the world. And so in closing, I want to leave you and don't worry, they're going to be short. Uh, When you hear four, uh, it's not long, I promise. So four short applications. First, I want to encourage you this morning. Trust God's provision for your salvation. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, again, maybe you've played that religious game. But, but you can't confidently say, I have known the Lord. Then hear the good news of the gospel again. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Christ came to redeem you, not merely from your physical situations in this lifetime, but even more from your sin and from an eternity in hell. He came to redeem you, to purchase you with his own blood that you may have eternal life and the hope of heaven. So if you would like this morning to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin and to receive Jesus as your treasure, as your savior, as your Lord, as your redeemer, then I would love to speak with you either during the invitation time or at the end of the service. And then secondly, I just want to encourage you this morning through the, through the story of Ruth, trust God's purpose in your suffering. If you're currently in a season of suffering, leverage it to increase your love for the Savior and your longing for heaven. Paul would say it this way. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. One day, suffering will be no more. Praise God. And God will make all things new. So long for that day and live by faith in light of that coming day. And and use your season of suffering to counsel others through their own season of suffering. Sometimes God permits things happen to us that we can help others during later times in their life. Paul Paul would say this in in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort we ourselves received by God. Thirdly, I want to encourage you this morning, show God's mercy to the vulnerable. So we've looked to the the example of Ruth, and then now we look to the example of Boaz. As Boaz showed mercy to Ruth, a Moabite foreigner, and as God has shown mercy to you and I, destitute sinners, so also we are to show mercy to the least of these. 
In our context, this is to include how we treat foreigners in our own land today, right? Our allegiance is not first and foremost to a political party or to a political ideology. Our allegiance is first and foremost to King Jesus. Therefore, may we seek to be a people of mercy, extending mercy to the foreigner and to the refugee in our own city, in our own state, and in our own country. For our Lord has said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is what? Merciful. Listen, church, we have received close to 1,000 new Afghans to Tulsa within the past year. The, 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 the most inaccessible and the most unreached people group in all of the world. And the Lord has brought them here to us. What if, what if God has within these 1,000 people some roots? People God has displaced for the purpose of redemption. So let's look to the example of Boaz and let's seek to be merciful and to serve these new families who have gone through immense tragedy and suffering. And so if you'd be interested in in learning more of how you can get involved in this effort, then you can talk to me after the service as well. There, There are great ways that you can get involved. But practically speaking, an easy way to do this is next time you see an international person in the grocery store, strike up a conversation with them. Get past the apprehension, get past the awkwardness, get past the fear and just say, hello, welcome, welcome, welcome to America. Show mercy to them by welcoming them. Build a relationship with them. You may never know. God might be pleased to use your initial act of mercy and kindness in that developing relationship to lead to their salvation. Another way to practically show God's mercy to the least of these is, is, is not by our doing only, but also by our giving. You can visit the International Mission Board's website. It's, it's the Southern Baptist Mission Sending Agency. You can visit their website at imb.org. And they have set up specific ways that you can meet the needs of vulnerable people around the world, from helping with the Yemeni refugee crisis to providing housing for women rescued from sex trafficking to providing basic necessities for those living in slums. There, there are many, a, a plethora of projects that you could give to. So go to their website, imb.org, click give at the top of the page to see the different ways and the different projects you can give to. And then finally, spread God's story of redemption in this world. So just as God used an ordinary, foreign, Moabite, widowed woman named Ruth, so too God can use you, no matter your station or season of life, to spread the good news of Jesus to the lives of others. Jesus equips his ordinary followers with his divine power to carry out his mission in this world. And so I encourage you, as, as, as Micah said many times, pray for those divine appointments. Pray for opportunities. Pray for God to intersect your life with, the, with those in, in the lives of whom he is working. Pray for opportunities to be used by him. We have been called by God to be recipients of his redemption, and we are called by God to be active participants of God's redemption in the world. So don't miss out on those opportunities around you, but pray for and seek those opportunities that the Lord has set before you. Whether in every season of life, whether in seasons of prosperity or seasons of suffering. For we are instruments in the hands of our Redeemer. God redeems unlikely people and he uses unlikely people through unlikely situations to advance his plan of redemption in the world. Will you seek to be used by him this week? Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we are humbled and that and we are grateful that you seek and that you indeed use people like us, ordinary people who have been filled with your spirit, who have been given your divine power as your agents, as your instruments, as your plan A in this world to see others know Jesus. I pray that you would use us and that you would use this church in a mighty way to advance your kingdom and to fulfill your mission in this world, to redeem people who are far from you. And I pray for those who don't yet know Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict them of their sin right now and that they would see the preciousness of Jesus and of his death and his, his resurrection in their place. And I pray that you would be at work however you see fit, Father, in the lives and in the hearts of every single one of us during this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. If you'd like to pray, if you'd like to the altar is open. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.